Let's get started. Let's open with prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and to study your word. Lord, I pray that this time would be uh, beneficial for us as we seek to be changed by your word. Lord, do what you want to do here today. Help us to understand your word. Help it to be spoken in truth. Lord, we pray all these things in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, we're going to continue our series in Colossians this morning, so please turn to Colossians chapter 2 if you want to follow along. Our text for this morning is going to be Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. So we're going to wrap up with chapter 2 today. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to the end of the chapter, and I'll read that for us here. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Does anybody remember our three-point outline of Colossians? We haven't talked about it in several weeks. I'm going to see if any of you remember it. Remember there were three sort of big picture sections we had talked about several times when we were beginning this series. Anyone remember any of them? How about the first one? I do. Yes, Robert is off the hook, guys. Come on, help him out here. (laughs) Okay, they have a lot to do with Christ. That's right. That's a very good answer, because everything has to do with Christ somehow. It's like asking the kids, That's right. That's right. There's always God, always Jesus, something like that. Right. How about, so for the first one, it starts with an I. Introduction. There you go, introduction. See, that's the easiest one, I think. Everything's always introduction. So we've got our intro and what I call the thesis. And by thesis, like I said, I don't mean like an academic thesis. I mean like the purpose for why he's writing the letter. All right. And um, we'll talk about that in a second. What's the second point? I like the problem. And the third is like the solution. Okay, yes, sort of, yeah. What else is it? The third, Christology. Second is Christology. Right. So, yeah, Christology, or as I called it, the knowledge of Christ. That's the second part. And then the third part is... Think practical. Yeah, you go. Christian living. Good job. That's even the way I put it. 
Christian learning. All right, now, you can outline you know, any book of the Bible a lot of different ways. Uh, but this is just my basic three-point outline just to kind of give us you know, a big bird's-eye view of what's going on here. First of all, you have Paul's introduction and thesis. Right? This is Paul introducing himself, introducing himself to the recipients, and then he goes into his purpose for the letter. Right? And his purpose of the letter is he's saying the knowledge of Christ, right? the understanding of the person and work of Christ embraced by faith is going to produce Christian living and it produce fruit. Right? And so that's exactly what he does and he sets out to sort of prove his thesis here. He first of all presents the knowledge of Christ, you know, who Jesus is, what he's done, and this is essentially, um, I remember right, it's 113 through 215. And this is 1-1 through 1-12. Alright, so this whole section, the knowledge of Christ, is what we've been in up till today. Right? We've been looking at Paul's basic teaching about Jesus. And you remember that in one, I think it's 115, he starts by saying, uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation, and that Jesus created all things, and that he hold, and in him all things hold together, and those sorts of things. Big picture stuff about the second person of the Trinity and the sovereign power of Jesus as a divine being. And then Paul moves into Jesus' work of reconciliation, his work of redemption, his work of justification. He even talks about baptism and how baptism symbolizes us dying to Christ and being risen again with Christ and that sort of thing. And so he's dealing with Jesus. He wants his people, his recipients, the Colossians, and us by extension, to understand the basics of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's what he's doing. And now today, as we get into chapter 2, verse 16, we're now entering into the third section of Colossians as I've outlined it. And the third section is Christian living. And so what he's going to be asking the question is, it, now that we understand what, who Jesus is and what he's done, how then should we live? What do we do as Christians? What are we to do? What are we not to do? Where are we free? Where do we have things that God requires of us as part of our sanctification? All these kinds of things. He's dealing with Christian living. And you've probably figured that out a little bit as we were reading through this verse. It's very, these verses. It's very different than what we were doing two weeks ago when he's talking about justification and, and Jesus canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands and all this kind of thing. And now he's moving, Paul here is moving into more of a practical kind of, of study. All right? And uh, Paul has, I think, essentially two major things that he's dealing with in this passage. Right? And, and these two major things, which we'll talk about in a second, have to do with Christian liberty. Christian liberty, that is how we as Christians live when we're not under the law. How we as Christians live when we're not under the law. And, and Christian liberty is something where it's a very complicated issue. And, um, of course, there's a lot of controversy there about some Christians say you shouldn't do this, where others say, yeah, you can do that, but you shouldn't do this. And there's all kinds of you know, different viewpoints of, of the specifics. But here, Paul is dealing with two specific kinds of problems that can arise when we as Christians see that we are forgiven and we're not under the law, but yet we still need to live like Christians. And what Paul is going to deal with is something that he calls, first of all, shadows. We'll talk about the second one when we get to it. The first thing he wants to talk about is shadows. And this is really important for us as we understand particularly the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Let's see, let's see what he has to say here in, in verses 16 and 17. Therefore, notice he starts with the word therefore. What does that imply? More to come, okay, that's true. What else does it imply? Yeah, right, and a, a result of what I have said previously. So because, it does imply, of course, stuff coming after it, but what it really is saying is that there's stuff before it that is linked. It's linked logically together. So take a look here. In two weeks ago, last time we were together, we looked at Paul's doctrine of justification, or at least a part of it, as he talks about Jesus' death on the cross canceled the record of debt, verse 14, that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So he just gets done talking about Jesus canceling the record of debt, satisfying God's justice on the cross. And then he says, therefore, because this has happened, because Christ has come and he has accomplished what he was supposed to do, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, notice here that Paul is bringing up three, uh, let's see, one, two, four specific things here. Four specific things here that, pe- that people ought not to pass judgment on them for. And he says, first of all, food and drink. Let no one pass judgment on you for food and drink. Why would he say that? What do you think the problem was? Okay, yep, absolutely. That was pretty common practice. Yeah, and why was that a problem? Why would that be a problem for particularly someone of a Jewish mindset? Well, make them feel like they were guilty. Mm hmm. Guilty of eating something that was potentially sacrificed idols or something like that, right? Yeah, what else? What kind of things did the Jews have to worry about in terms of food and drink? Cleansing it. What's that? Eating unclean. Yeah, eating unclean stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right, because in the Pentateuch, like if you read, you know, um, the uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you're going to find all kinds of laws that God prescribes about food and drink, about eating certain things. And there were clean animals and there were unclean animals. I'm sure you you all know this, but I'm just rehearsing this. There were clean animals and unclean animals. They were not allowed to eat pigs, for example. That was an unclean animal. They were not allowed to eat other things because you know they were unclean animals and they could only eat these things. There were certain things that they couldn't eat together. You know, there's a verse that talks about do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the way that the Jews interpreted that was you can't eat dairy and meat together in the same meal. They have to be separate. In fact, um, I think I've told you this before. A couple years ago, um, I got to go to Israel with the president of my uh, college that I did my undergrad at. And that was an amazing trip. We did so many fun things. Uh, Saw so many great sights. Um, I got to go through the tunnel that Hezekiah dug in 2 Chronicles. talks about he digs a tunnel under Jerusalem. And I went through that tunnel. It's about this big, and you have to like crouch down, and it's half in water and stuff. It's kind of creepy, actually. I'm surprised I had the guts to do it at the time. But it was really fun. So many things. You open your eyes to the Bible in so many ways. But one of the things that I thought was super cool when I went to Israel was the food. And it was something I wasn't expecting because, you see, 
There are a lot of Jews in Israel that still practice the Old Testament food laws. And whenever we went out to eat, even the buffets at our hotels in Israel, whenever we went out to eat, dairy and meat were always 100% separate. They were not even served at the same times of the day. So when we get up in the morning and we go to the buffet for breakfast at our hotel, there would be dairy galore. You know, milks and cheeses and eggs and there's all kinds of different things there, fruit. It was all served together and you could have milk with your coffee in the morning or cream or whatever and it was great. Then you come for lunch. No dairy. Nothing at all. No dairy. And even if you ask for it, they will not serve it to you. They've got it in the kitchen, but they won't give it to you. There's no such thing as eating meat and cheese together or having milk in your coffee at lunchtime. Nope. No milk, because lunchtime is for meat. And you have meat, no dairy. So, th- I mean, there's just kind of, like, I, I knew about these food laws, but it was the first time I had, like, experienced it and been a part of a culture where the food laws were implemented and you had to follow them. You didn't get to cheat. And uh, that's, that's the kind of thing that Jewish people had to deal with. Right? And that's the kind of thing, also, that Christians had to wrestle with in the first century church. Because when Jesus came, of course, as we learn in, say, Acts with Peter's vision and other parts of the New Testament, we learned that with the coming of Christ, the food laws have been removed. We get to eat bacon now, and it's awesome. Oh, it's so good. I'm so glad we get to eat bacon now. It's just a wonderful, wonderful food. Um, But the food laws were abrogated. They were removed with the coming of Christ, as made clear in various parts of Scripture. And that was hard for a lot of Jewish Christians. And that was even hard just for the reputation of people who claimed to follow the Old Testament, like the Colossians here. They weren't necessarily Jewish people. They were primarily Gentiles. But they still had to deal with the the theological questions of what do we do with these food laws. And Paul is saying, listen, with the coming of Christ, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you with food and drink. Jesus made all foods clean. You don't have to worry about that. Let no one judge you for it. As Christians, you have liberty here. Eat bacon if you want to. Eat pork if you want to. It's not a big deal. Jesus declared it all clean. Let no one pass judgment on you in food and drink. And then he says, let no one pass judgment on you with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And here he's talking about the Jewish calendar. You know, all the different feasts. You know that if you read the Pentateuch, you have all these different feasts and rest days, and so on. And what Paul is saying is, hey, listen, the Jewish calendar, that doesn't apply anymore. That was part of the Old Covenant. You don't have to worry about that now. Celebrate it if you want to, but let no one bring judgment upon you if you decide not to. But one of the things, and I mean, we all sort of know that already, but one of the things I thought was interesting in reading this passage is notice what he says at the very end of the verse. Let no one pass judgment on you with regard to a festival or a new moon or what else? <clears throat> a Sabbath. Now there are, as you probably expect, there are some Christians who come to this text and say, oh, look, let no one pass judgment on you with regard to a Sabbath. Oh, that must mean that the weekly Sabbath of God's people, you know, Saturday or Sunday or whatever, has been removed. So we as Christians don't need a Sabbath anymore. We can write it off. 
That's it. Sabbath is an Old Testament thing. We don't have a weekly day of rest anymore in the New Testament. You see why someone might try to say that with regard to this verse? Now, I don't think that. All right. Neither does the, the Reformed tradition we think that. We think the Sabbath is a New Testament thing. And here's a couple reasons for it and why Paul, really, I don't think, is talking about that here. First of all, the Sabbath that we talk about, or today, right, the Sunday, that we, our Sunday theology, right? The whole concept of the Sabbath was not instituted with the food laws. It was not instituted with the Jewish calendar. It was not instituted in the Mosaic Covenant. Right? It was not, interest, it was not uh, instituted with Abraham. <clears throat> it was not instituted with Cain or Abel. No. When was the Sabbath first instituted? That's right, on day seven of creation. In other words, the Sabbath, the weekly day of rest, was instituted in creation. It is a creation ordinance. It is not an ordinance of the Old Testament law. That makes it very different than food laws, or very different than a Jewish calendar. It is something that has endured for all of creation of all time. It is a creation ordinance, right? And then, not only that, not only is the Sabbath a creation ordinance, but guess where else it shows up? It shows up in no other place than the Ten Commandments, which we just spent a whole series studying this past summer and early fall. Now, I didn't teach on the Sabbath commandment. I think Grant was the one who taught on that commandment. But you should remember, that is part of the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, as was taught in that series, is generally treated throughout history as a summary of the moral law. And the moral law is never abrogated. The moral law is never removed from Christians. It's never removed from people. We always have to follow the moral law. It's not the, you know, the ceremonial law, the sacrifices, or that sort of thing. It's not any of that. It's something that endures for all time. And the Sabbath command, there's a whole command about the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments. Right along murdering and stealing and committing adultery and not having other gods. Now, the Sabbath is not something that is no longer applicable to us in the New Testament. It is applicable. <clears throat> now, I'm not going to deal with what should we do or not do on the Sabbath or whatever. You can listen to the recordings of Grant's lectures on that if you want to. But um, what I do want to say is that it is still a New Testament ordinance. It is still something that we are doing today and should do. It's still commanded of us to have this day of rest. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. We did change the day. So you could say this. The Sabbath has been moved, but not removed. (laughs) That's what I say sometimes. That's right, because the early church celebrate the day of rest on the day that Jesus rose again. And we see that in the scriptures. It says they worshipped on the first day of the week rather than on the seventh. Levi, I'm not being argumentative, but what's the intent of that? I am very glad you asked. That's exactly where we were going. That's exactly where we're going. So, if going back to the verse now, you see the word Sabbath here, and then our anti-Sabbatarians are going to say, well, see, Paul says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you with regard to a Sabbath. This is John's question right here. He's like, hey, what are you going to do with this Sabbath here? A couple things. Firstly, look at um, those last two words of the verse. Notice it doesn't say the Sabbath. Yeah, it just says a Sabbath. 
That means that in the Greek, there's no article there, meaning there's no the. So he's not referring to the Sabbath. You know, as other places in the scripture, when Jesus talks about the Sabbath, he's, and he means the weekly Sabbath, he says the Sabbath. Not a Sabbath. So Paul here is speaking about rest days in general. And particularly what he has in view is the various rest days that were part of the Jewish calendar instituted in the Mosaic Covenant. He's not talking about the rest day that God instituted in creation. Very special difference there. Does that make sense, John? That's what he's after here. Because, and, and if he means that, that fits with when he talks about festivals and new moons and that sort of thing. He has in mind the Jewish calendar here that was instituted in the Mosaic Covenant, not the creation calendar, if you will, that was instituted on day seven in Genesis. Okay? That's what he's got in view. So, now we can get bogged down in some of the Sabbath doctrine here, and I don't want to spend more time on it than we already have, but what I do want to point out here is what Paul's doing is he's pointing to his Colossian people, his Colossian recipients, and he's saying, listen, these things that I'm giving to you as sort of examples of what I'm talking about, these things, don't let anyone pass judgment on you if you decide not to follow the Jewish festivals as Christians or if you decide not to follow the food laws as Christians. These things have been fulfilled by Christ and are no longer applicable to us as New Testament, New Covenant believers. And then he says in verse 17, the reason. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These are a shadow of the things to come. And here's now we get into what I was talking about with Paul discussing shadow here. Um, if we think about a shadow, or say just the idea of a shadow, like say I draw a picture of a person here, very well-drawn stick man. And we put the sun over here. Sun's going to shine on the stick man. That's going to create a shadow, right? Let's color it in here. That creates a shadow. Now, if we were to look at this shadow, would the shadow tell us something about the thing that's making the shadow in terms of its shape and its size? Tell us, generally speaking, sort of, yeah, you know, if you're if I was standing here and someone was walking behind me and he was casting a shadow in front of me, I'd be able to see, you know, oh, that's a person. You know, I wouldn't think it was a dinosaur or something probably unless it was really the shadow was really whacked out. You could generally tell what's casting the shadow, right? But the shadow itself is going to be twisted somehow and distorted. It's going to look different. It's going to have a slightly different shape. You might be able to recognize sort of what it is, but you're not going to see exactly what it is. You're not going to catch all the details. You're not going to catch all the intricacies of the shape. It's going to be different. And also, the shadow is not the thing itself. If I look at the shadow of the stick man, that is not the stick man. That is simply something pointing forward to the stick man. And that's the kind of thing that Paul has in view here when he talks about you know, the food laws and the Jewish calendar and so on being shadows. <clears throat> They're shadows of the things to come, as Hebrews will say, and uh, the author of Hebrews will say in chapter 10. Because what the, what the Old Testament person, if I can do this, what the Old Testament person was doing is he was sort of standing here looking at the shadow. And the real thing was behind him, what hadn't come yet. The New Testament person is standing right here, though. And he's looking at the real thing. 
the real thing from which the shadow comes. That's what Paul's getting at here. He's saying, listen, food laws, Jewish calendars, all of these sort of Mosaic Covenant Old Testament institutions, they're not the real thing. They were instituted for a time. And with the coming of Christ, their purpose was fulfilled. And with the coming of Christ, we now get to see the real substance of the thing, not the shadow. Not the shadow. And for Paul then, when he's discussing now Christian living, because remember, this is the subject we're moving into here. As he discusses Christian living, he's saying, he's saying to his recipients, listen guys, Old Testament, these Old Testament Mosaic Covenant stuff, this stuff is no longer applicable for us now. This stuff has now passed on because the real substance has come. And that's really, really important for first century Christians who are claiming the Old Testament for themselves. Right? There's, the Christians are saying, we are the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We are what it was looking forward to. But then they have to figure out, okay, what do we do now with all of these laws and stuff, all of the Mosaic laws? What are we going to do? Do we still follow those? Some Christians took that route and said, yeah, we should still follow those. But Paul comes along and says, no, you don't need to follow those. They've been fulfilled by Christ. They are shadows of the good things to come. Christ is the substance. He is what we look to now. Okay, so that's his shadows. That's what he's doing in those first couple of verses. Now he's going to move into something else, what I'm going to call human inventions. This is another thing that we as Christians have to deal with. Now, we don't deal so much with how Old Testament applies to us today as, as they did in the first century. We still have lots of theological questions about it and so on. But this is where we really have problems today with human inventions. Let's, let's see what Paul has to say about this. Verse 18 is where he starts talking about this. So he talks about the shadows. Now verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Um, going back up to the beginning of verse 18, you see that word disqualify? The word disqualify? In the Greek, the word that's being used there has uh, literally means to take the palm from. To take the palm from. And what that word means in its nuance is it's saying someone has been, someone's reward for the Olympic Games has been removed from them. And that's why in our English Bible, we have the word disqualify. It's a great translation because the word disqualify, even in English, has the nuance of being removed from a competition. So I, I think the ESV translators did great here, and I, I don't know what the other translations say, but... I was about to say, New King James says, let no one cheat you if you're rewarded. No one cheats you. Oh, okay. That's an interesting one, too, there. He says the same thing? Okay. Well, looking at the Greek, you can see why my ESV wants to go with disqualify. You know, it wants to say, hey, you have been removed from the race. And what Paul is warning about here is he's saying, let no one, let no false teacher tell you that you have been removed or you've been disqualified from salvation because you have not practiced asceticism and the worship of angels. 
So you see what he's dealing with here. We'll talk about asceticism and angels in a second. But you see what he's doing. He's saying, some people apparently among the Colossians were saying, listen guys, you claim to be Christians, that's great. But you need to do A, B, and C, otherwise you have disqualified yourself from salvation. You've had the palm taken from you. You've had the reward taken from you. You are not saved unless you do X, Y, and Z. And Paul's saying, no, let no one disqualify you for those kinds of things. And he'll tell us why in a second. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Any, anybody familiar with the word asceticism? Heard of it before? Robert's nodding his head. I know he knows. Robert, what's asceticism? Like love you a monk. Like being a monk? Okay. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Yep. Asceticism uh, is very associated with monks and monasteries and that sort of thing. Asceticism in itself is a movement. It was really popular among early Christians. It isn't quite as popular today, but still around. And asceticism is the idea that that we, as Christians, in order to really make sure that we are devoted to God, we need to deny ourselves the pleasures of this world, and we need to perhaps even focus on causing ourselves to suffer. We need to, in a certain sense, torture ourselves in order to show our devotion to God. And, and in the first few centuries of the church, asceticism was a big thing. It was huge. People were doing it all the time. There's a guy named, I think it was, what's his name? Um, I've got him here. There we go, Simon the Elder. Simon the Elder from the early church. And he was a very godly person. <clears throat> the church reached out to him for a lot of theological help. He was from Syria. And guess what he did? He was an ascetic. He's like the prime example of an ascetic. And what he did to show his devotion to God and show how much he loved God, he actually climbed up on top of a pillar, you know, about like, yay big, climbed on top of a pillar with a flat top, and he lived on top of that pillar for over 30 years of his life. He never came down. He just stayed up there. People would come every day to give him food and, you know, water and stuff, but he stayed up there all day long, every day, for 30 years of his life. Why did he do that? He was an ascetic. He was showing God how devoted he was to him by basically suffering on top of a pillar. Now, maybe Paul doesn't have that kind of super extreme thing in view here. Maybe he's just thinking people who, you know, refuse to get married just to deny themselves the, the pleasure of marriage and all it has to offer or something like that. I don't know. But it's that kind of thing Paul has in view here. Some Christians in the early church especially wanted to say, you're not a true Christian unless you torture yourself to show your devotion to God. And Paul says, no. Let no one disqualify you from the reward of salvation, insisting that you need to practice asceticism. You don't have to do that. There's plenty of suffering that God can ordain for you that you didn't cause upon yourself. The Bible promises suffering for Christians, some receive more than others, right? but we don't have to, to bring it upon ourselves on purpose. God can do that. So let no one disqualify you for asceticism, and let no one disqualify you for the worship of angels. If you remember from our introductory session of Colossians, I don't know if you will or not, but we talked about in that session that the Colossians 
had problems with hyper-spiritualized Christianity. That is that they were very interested in the spiritual side of the Christian faith and you know, demonic powers and angelic powers. And, and the culture of Colossae was one that tried to manipulate spiritual forces to get things done for the people, to appease them so they could have better crops or you know, more fertility or those sorts of things. And apparently some of the teachers here, just reading into this a little bit, were saying, hey, you, you can't be a Christian unless you worship all the heavenly beings. Not just God, but the angels too. Paul's like, nope, sorry. That is not a condition for being a Christian. In fact, that's idolatry. He doesn't go into that here, but we would know from other parts of Scripture the worship of angels is idolatry. So let no one disqualify you for either of those things. And then he goes on into detail here after the angels about the people who are saying these things. Let no one disqualify you. Those people who are going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. If you um, heard, uh, I think some of you were here for this, if you heard uh, the evening message that I preached a few weeks ago as we finished our series on Jude, you'd remember that Jude talked a little bit about the fact that one of, the, one of the marks of a false teacher is that they rely on their own dreams. And by that, he perhaps meant they're just their own ability to conjure up ideas outside of Scripture, but he could have also meant visions. That Jude warns about one of the marks of a false teacher is the fact that they think they have received visions from God, and then they walk around saying, I had a vision that God told me X, Y, and Z. You have to believe it. That's one of the marks of a false teacher. And here, that's what Paul is saying. These guys are doing that. They're going on about visions, going into detail about these things they think they've seen, things they think God has told them. That's a problem. That's a red flag. That's a red flag. And not only that, but they're also puffed up by a sensuous mind. They're, they're prideful. Very prideful. And I got to tell you, you have to be pretty prideful to be a false teacher. Because <laughs> you have to base your teaching upon your own authority and not God's. Puffed up. And then they also are not holding fast to the head. Notice head is capitalized, I think. Well, it's a translation, I guess. There's no capitals that way in the Greek, but it's capitalized in my Bible, meaning that the translators are seeing that the head is Jesus. Jesus is the head. And they are not holding fast to Jesus. These people who are coming about and saying, hey, you're disqualified for not doing this and for not doing that. You're not going to get salvation because you're not following the Jewish calendar. No, no, no. <clears throat> They're not holding fast to Christ is the problem, according to Paul. And now here, just to finish up, as we look at uh, the last couple of verses, verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. According to human precepts and teachings. And here is where Paul's getting into this idea of human inventions. Christian living is hard. It's not just hard to follow what God says. It's hard to sometimes discern what God says and what other people are saying. Some people try to grab shadows from the Old Testament and say they're the real thing. Some people try to just invent things, invent laws, invent ideas, invent regulations that Christians have to follow in the New Testament. Otherwise, they don't get salvation. 
I'm all saying, you guys have died to this. When you became a Christian, you have died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world. Why is it that you're pretending to still be part of the world? You're still, you're still following these worldly inventions. You're not following Christ. Why are you doing that? These human inventions, verse 23, have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's very true that people who invent laws and add them to the Bible, what we call legalists, it's very true that people who invent these things look very pious on the outside. They look very holy. They look like they're really good Christians. And they promise that if you just follow all of these laws that they made up, that you'll have a fulfilled, a spiritually fulfilled life. Problem is that it's of no value, Paul says. It's of no value for stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's not going to fulfill you. Following man-made laws, following human inventions, following the shadows, that's not going to spiritually fulfill you. There's no value for that. Now next week we'll um, take more look at what Paul is going to say in chapter 3 about these kinds of things. Uh, yeah, you have a question? No, I have a comment. Uh, all this stuff is rampant in the Roman church. Mm-hmm. But the Roman church is not really something we're particularly bothered by. It's also rampant in the Protestant church or much of it and becoming more so all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, for instance, uh, many, many more than almost more, it seems like every year, tout uh, Lent, for instance. And um, it could even, if you over, overdo it, it could even become the sort of thing that can infect Christmas and Easter. Mm-hmm. If at Christmas you get away from the incarnation aspect, or at Easter you get away from the resurrection, you get all sorts of things, or somebody thinks that, well, if I go church on Christmas and Easter, that's extra special time to do it, <laughs> that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not far removed from this at all. Yeah. And uh, I do, I have found it interesting over the years to realize that the more liberal, i.e. the more away from scriptural basis of denomination comes, the more this kind of junk comes in mm-hmm. to fill the vacuum which is presented there by the scriptures being kicked out. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep, yep. And I was going to to bring out a little bit of this as we finish out today and, and kind of build on Robert's thought here. You know, there are a million ways we can apply what's going on here in the scripture to us right now. Obviously, we can look at the global church and see all kinds of failures in this area. As you move away from the word of God, you begin to create more and more of laws that you think should be true and try to foist them on other people, and that just creates trouble. But if we look at elsewhere in Scripture, we also want to be careful. We don't want to go too far on one side either and say, okay, you know, um, we don't want to follow all these man-made laws, so let's be antinomian and throw out law altogether and just you know, focus on the gospel and then never do anything. We don't want to be antinomian either. 
Obviously, a true understanding of the gospel is going to bring us to want to study God's law and figure out what God is prescribing and do what he wants us to do. So we can fall on either side of the boat. We can be legalists and make up stuff, or we can be antinomian and throw out God's legitimate law. And as biblical Christians, we want to be in the middle. Because guess what? Paul's got really strong things to say for anti-law people in Galatians. I go read that and get the balance between this passage and that passage. But as we just think about the point that Paul's making here, right? how are we going to tell the difference between God's law that he has given to us that we are required to follow for our sanctification as Christians and human inventions, laws that other people have added to the Bible? How are we going to tell the difference? Chapter 3. Chapter 3, okay, yeah, good. More big picture. Read the Bible. That's right, read the Bible. That's right. So, Colossians 3 is definitely right, but it's right because we read the Bible. Right? That's the only way we're going to tell the difference between false teaching and true teaching, between right laws that we ought to follow and human inventions and shadows. We've got to read the Word. And all the while, when we're thinking about Christian living and being lawful, fruit-bearing Christians, remember to always keep the gospel at the forefront. We are not following the laws of God to save us. Jesus already followed the laws and gave us his righteousness for us. We don't have to be perfect. We follow these laws in thankfulness. We follow these laws because we trust in Christ, in his perfect law following. Okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Lord, we, uh, we know that there are many false teachers out there that will try to add to it. They'll add commands and add all kinds of teachings and false doctrines. And Lord, please, we ask you this morning, draw us to your word so that we will be able to distinguish between right teaching and false teaching. Lord, give us passion for your word. Help us to remember it. Help us to file it away in our brains so we can recall it later. Lord, draw us to your word, and through it, draw us to yourself, so that we serve you, not so that we can be saved, and we don't serve you so that we can get something out of you. Lord, we serve you because we love you. Help us to do that. And Lord, as we now prepare for worship, help us to open our minds to the preaching of your word this morning. Um, In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.